Welcome to the First Church Orlando podcast. Here you will find recordings of weekly sermons, devotions, interviews, and seminar recordings from the First United Methodist Church of Orlando. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the podcast. Our scripture scripture reading this morning comes from the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, selected verses. Some people came down from Judea teaching the family of believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom we receive from Moses, you can't be saved. Paul and Barnabas took sides against these Judeans and argued strongly against their position. When they arrived in Jerusalem, the church, the apostles, and the elders all welcomed them. They gave a full report of what God had accomplished through their activity. Some believers from among the Pharisees stood up and claimed, the Gentiles must be circumcised. They must be required to keep the law from Moses. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. After much debate, Peter stood and addressed them, fellow believers, you know that early on God chose me from among you as the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and come to believe. God, who knows people's deepest thoughts and desires, confirmed this by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, but purified their deepest thoughts and desires through faith. Why, then, are you now challenging God by placing a burden on the shoulders of these disciples that neither we nor our ancestors could bear? On the contrary, we believe that we and they are saved in the same way, by the grace of the Lord Jesus. The entire assembly fell quiet as they listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God did among the Gentiles through their activity. When Barnabas and Paul also fell silent, James responded, fellow believers, listen to me. Simon reported how in his kindness God came to the Gentiles in the first place to raise up from them a people of God. Therefore, I conclude that we shouldn't create problems for Gentiles who turn to God. Instead, we should write a letter telling them to avoid the pollution associated with idols, sexual immorality, eating meat from strangled animals, and consuming blood. After all, Moses has been been proclaimed in every city for a long time and is read aloud every Sabbath in every synagogue. This is the word of God for the people of God. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today's passage from Acts 15 is is basically about two things. One, rules and laws. And on the other, grace 
God's love and how we hold those two things in tension. Uh, A number of years ago, I was the pastor of a church that decided to sponsor a Boy Scout troop. We had, we didn't have one. Uh, We had some parents with teenage boys that, that wanted to have a troop at the church. It meant that we would be responsible for this troop. It was our troop. And they were just getting started. So they were figuring out what the the rules, the policies of our particular troop might be. I agreed for us to have a Boy Scout troop. I, I never intended to get involved, but I quickly had to. Among the the parents leading the troop, there were parents who were part of our church and some who were not, and there was a disagreement among the leadership about what the rules should be, which led to some very long, uh, painful meetings. I, I remember one meeting that I was dragged into that was rather contentious. It was around the question of whether the boys should be required to carry their fire and knife toting chips, or sometimes referred to as chits. You have to be careful how you say these things. And, and there was some who thought that the boys needed to carry these cards that were given to them after they had proven that they knew how to start a fire safely or how to use a a pocket knife safely. I mean, that was the point, right? We wanted to teach the boys helpful skills and to keep them safe. And so there were some who thought when the boys come to a, a camp out or a meeting, if they're carrying a pocket knife or starting a fire, we need them to be able to pull one of their chips or chits out of their wallet and show us they've earn that privilege. The others thought, well, that's silly. Why do we make them carry these things around? We know who has, has earned them and who hasn't. And, and so it became this big debate over whether the boys should carry these cards in their wallet or not. The point was to keep the boys safe. But quickly our meeting became about rules. What rules would we have? Who would make the rules? Who had the power to decide who would enforce the rules? I I don't remember even what the decision was, but I do, two decades later, remember the pain of that meeting. It wasn't fun. Now, we all know we, we need rules. We need laws. We need regulations. Without them, we would devolve into chaos, whether as a nation or as a church or as a business or even as a family. Rules, laws are those ways of of functioning together that are hopefully to some degree mutually agreed upon. They give each of us our individual freedoms, but help us from stepping on the toes of others. We need these, right? They they help us to function. Imagine driving without any kind of traffic laws or traffic lights or stop signs or medians or those lines that divide the road. Just go out and drive any way you want, any speed, any particular direction. Or imagine watching your favorite sports, but the rules are thrown out the window and no refs are involved. Just, Just have fun, right? Imagine a government without a constitution, without a bill of rights. Any of you are teachers. Imagine 
managing a classroom of children without some sort of basic rules. But sometimes rules can become excessive. Sometimes rules made sense in one generation and they just don't make sense anymore. Rules can become burdensome. Uh, one time, uh, there's a story that, that uh, a woman was planning to, to make a, a ham for a dinner that they were having, a special occasion. So she asked her husband, would you please stop by the grocery store and pick up a ham, but make sure you tell the butcher to cut the end of the ham off. He brought the ham home and, and he had forgotten to have the end of the ham cut off. And she said, I told you, we, we have to have a ham with the end cut off. And he said, well, but why? What, what's wrong with the end? She said, well, I don't, I don't know, but my mother always cut off the end of, of her ham. So, well, let's call her. Let's find out. And mom, why, why do we cut the end off the ham? She said, I, I don't know. My mother always cut the end off the ham. Well, well, let's call grandma and find out. And grandma said, well, because I had a short pan. How many rules do we have that made sense when we had a short pan, but we don't need the rule anymore? The question is, what, what rules do we need? And, and what rules might make us seem legalistic? How do we find the balance of, of rules and freedom that, that doesn't put us on one end, of anarchy at one extreme, or fascism at the other? Now, undeniably, there are a lot of rules in our Bible. In fact, some would say that's what the Bible is. It's a rule book. I disagree with that. The Bible is not primarily about rules, but there are a number of there. Of course, we all know the Ten Commandments, or at least about them. We're not always able to name all ten, but that's a different conversation. But by the time of Jesus and the disciples, the number of rules, laws, regulations had increased to 613 laws that were considered to be vital, non-negotiable. They governed everything in life from hand-washing to sex to Sabbath observance to animal sacrifice to how we deal with illnesses, even how you clean household mold. And if you didn't do it correctly, you would fall into the category of unclean. Who wants to be unclean? We all want to be clean in the eyes of God. This was one of the primary gripes of the religious leaders about Jesus and his followers. They were always saying that you don't follow the rules well. You and your disciples are unclean. Jesus found himself in ongoing conflict with the Pharisees over this. In fact, Matthew 23, 2-5, Jesus says, The Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. That's what they're saying. The rules are all about, a, it's a game to, to look religious. But it really is just a burden. Now last week we talked about the, the conversion and the calling of Paul the apostle. Remember, Paul had been one of these Pharisees. He had been a rule keeper. We talked last week about how, how radical was his con conversion to discover 
that we're saved not by our rule-keeping, but we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 8, you are saved by grace because of your faith. This salvation is God's gift. It's not something you possessed. It's not something that you did that you can be proud of. Grace is a free gift of God's unconditional love for all of us. In 2 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul puts it more succinctly. He says, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. By letter, he's referring to a, a legalistic interpretation of the biblical laws. It's sort of like the old expression, the, the letter of the law versus the Spirit of the law. Pharisees were about the rigid letter of the law. He says, the letter kills. But what? What did this mean, this discovery that we're saved by grace? What did it mean for these new Gentile, non-Jewish converts? When we began this series at the beginning of the summer, the summer of the Spirit, we started with the story of Jesus' ascension into heaven. And the last instruction he gave his disciples before ascending was this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. To the end of the earth. In essence, he was saying, this mission I'm sending you on to be my witnesses to the world will take you places you've never been before. You will be exposed to people and cultures and customs that you are not familiar with. It, it will take you beyond the boundaries of our people, the Jews, and take you into the world of the Gentiles. Gentile simply means non-Jewish. But Jesus never gave instructions about what to do with these Gentiles when they responded to the witness of the disciples. What was going to be the rules, the expectations for these Gentiles who became followers of Jesus? Did they need to become Jewish to be followers of a Jewish Messiah? If they needed to become Jewish, did that mean the men would need to be circumcised? That could be uncomfortable. That could be a hard sell. What about the Sabbath? What about the Jewish festivals? What about imposing and forcing the Jewish diet? Remember, Jews eat certain foods and not others. Now, Jesus and his disciples have been accused of not being very good rule followers, not being very strict in their observance of the Jewish laws, and yet, it's who they were. Jesus was Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. They were steeped in the Jewish traditions and customs. We know they went to Jerusalem for the festivals. We know they maintained a Jewish diet. It's what they knew. What, what, what will we do now with these Gentiles who don't have those customs and practices? What do we do with these uncircumcised, unclean Gentiles? And to complicate things all the more, these unclean, uncircumcised Gentiles were being baptized. 
Their lives were being changed. You could see the fruit of the Spirit working in their lives. What do we do when it's obvious that their lives are being changed without the Jewish rules? Some strongly believe they must become Jewish. How could they not become Jewish? But others, like Paul and Barnabas and others, disagreed. And so a meeting was called in Jerusalem. I mean, that's what churches do when we're not sure how to resolve a conflict. We call a meeting. It's evidence that the early church were good Methodists. By the way, do you know what you call a group of flesh-eating vultures? If you have a group of fish, you call them a school. If you have a, a group of birds, like we have our origami, you call it a a flock, right? A group of fish, it's a, it's a school, a herd of cattle, etc. A group of vultures, a committee. <laughs> I'll say no more. So a committee of early church leaders was called Paul and Barnabas, Peter and James, the apostle, the elders, the lay leader, the chair of the finance committee, the chair of the trustee, they, we come together, right? And Paul and Barnabas start telling the story. We, we've been to Antioch. We've, we've been preaching about Jesus and the Gentiles are coming to be followers of the risen Jesus, our Jesus. The Spirit is working among them. Well, there was a group there, a group of former Pharisees who now were followers of Jesus. Remember the Pharisees, the rule makers. They said, the Gentiles must be circumcised. They must be required to keep the law from Moses. Then Peter, the apostle, stood and he said, fellow believers, you know that early on God chose me from among you as the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and come to believe. He's talking about Cornelius. God who knows people's deepest thoughts and desires confirmed us by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them by, but purified their deepest thoughts and desires through faith. Why then are you now challenging God by placing a burden on the shoulders of these disciples that neither we nor our ancestors could bear? On the contrary, we believe that we and they are saved in the same way, by grace, by the grace of the Lord Jesus. The conversation went on and then James stood, James, the brother of Jesus who had become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He said, I conclude that we shouldn't create problems for Gentiles who turn to God. Instead, we should write a letter telling them to avoid pollution associated with idols, sexual immorality, eating meat from strangled animals, and consuming blood. Just, just several very basic rules. We could get into why they thought those were important. That's kind of beyond the point of today's message. But just think about that. We've gone from 600 rules, laws that we want to impose on the Gentiles to now just four. That's a radical shift. And they all seem to have come to agreement, at least for the moment. 
I don't, I don't think we could possibly overstate the significance of this moment in the development of the early church. If not for this decision to not enforce that Gentiles become Jewish, then probably Christianity would never have been more than just a small sect of Judaism. Probably most of us would not be here today. This was a radical departure from their former understanding of the nature of God, the character of God, and God's intent for the world. Pharisees believed God was a God of law and a punishing God if you didn't keep the law. They were willing to accept Gentile converts as long as they followed the law. But Paul and Barnabas, Peter and James realized we are saved by grace. Even those of us steeped in these laws and traditions, we too are saved only by grace. These old categories of clean and unclean are a myth. No one is clean apart from grace. And no one is so unclean that they can't be recipients of grace. In Jesus, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the giving of the Holy Spirit, God was doing something new, and it was available to everyone, Jew and Gentile, you and me. Leonardo Boff says, to live according to the Spirit is to live in the new reality inaugurated by the risen one and confirmed by the manifestation of the Spirit at Pentecost, a reality open to all the people and languages of the world. When Peter spoke back in verse 10, he said, why are you challenging God by placing a burden on the shoulders of these disciples that neither we nor our ancestors could bear? That's the CEB version. I actually like the message version better. It says, why are you trying to out-God God? Why are you trying to out God, God, isn't God enough? Or as Paul would later say, isn't God's grace sufficient? The Pharisees were just so convinced that their rules, their way of doing things were correct that they couldn't even see their own need for grace or the way that grace was working in the lives of these new Gentile converts. God's grace was clearly working apart from the tree's legalism. Remember when Jesus said, judge a tree by its fruits. Well, they couldn't see the fruits. They could only see the lack of obedience to their rules. In essence, he was saying Pharisees were placing themselves above God, making things necessary that God never made necessary, adding requirements that God clearly did not need. Raniero Cantalamesa, the, the, pope, the, the preacher to several popes, writes, what matters to God is people. We know that, right? What matters to God is people, not structures. It is souls that make the church beautiful. God's concerned about the hearts of people, the love of his people, and everything else is meant to function as a support of that priority. Well, the early church, of course, weren't the last Christians to deal with this conversation about rules. 
It continued throughout the New Testament, all the way through history of the church to this modern day. The Reformation was ultimately about rules. Are we saved through rituals enforced by a a male priesthood, or are we saved by grace through faith? The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. Every Christian denomination that's ever existed has wrestled over rules. Who can be ordained as pastors? Who can receive the sacraments and who can't? What will our courting rituals be? Who can be married or remarried? And issues around human sexuality. What are our our liberties or what are our restrictions around drinking alcohol, gambling, smoking, even dancing? What will be our church structure? What's the hierarchy? What's our bureaucracy? In the Methodist church, we have a big book of rules called the United Methodist Book of Discipline. It's a very ominous title. It guides us, and we need that. And right now, the United Methodist Church is struggling and is dividing over some disagreement, over some important rules around human sexuality. Rules matter. But there is, unfortunately, a tendency, I think, particularly among religious people, to allow rules to to move into the realm of, of legalism. Rules matter, but rules do not have their ability within themselves to be life-giving. We all know it's possible to be a, a good rule follower, but those rules may never lead us to God. At best, rules serve as, as aids, tools. They serve as, as safety rails, as mutual agreements, But rules in and of themselves can never be the source of our spiritual life. They can never be the strength we need in difficult times. They can never inspire us to hope and faith. We need grace for that. And Lamott defines grace as unearned love. The love that goes before, that greets us on the way. It's the help you receive when you have no bright ideas left. When you're empty and desperate and have discovered that your best thinking and most charming charm have failed you. Grace is the light that takes you from that isolated place and puts you with others who are startled and embarrassed and eventually grateful as you are to be there. I love that. Great definition of grace. Earlier in the service, our choir sang a beautiful rendition of the familiar hymn, Amazing Grace. I don't know if there's a, a song in, in existence, any genre, as well-known, as beloved, as, as popular as Amazing Grace. It's known both in the church and without, and, and who knows how many languages. You may not know that, John, that Amazing Grace was written by an 18th century Anglican priest by the name of John Newton. Before John Newton's conversion to Christianity and his call to ministry, his first profession was to be the captain of a slave ship. He worked in and profited from the transatlantic slave trade. He would steer his ship into the west coast of Africa. The the below decks would be loaded with recently captured African slaves. They would be put in chains. 
taken across the Atlantic to be sold into slavery in the Americas. You may have heard about the dismal conditions below deck. They say that about one in six of the slaves died during their journey across the Atlantic Ocean. Even when he stopped sailing these ships, he invested more deeply into the slave trade, profiting from it significantly. But once he was converted, he saw the error of his ways. He saw the evil in the slave industry, and he repented of that. He became an abolitionist, and he wrote this hymn. We've sung this hymn. You've heard this hymn so many times. But did you realize it's John Newton's autobiography? He's not just writing words for us to sing. He's telling us his personal story. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, a wretch that used to load slaves onto ships and shackle them, a wretch that used to dehumanize people and profit from it, a wretch that has to live with the evil that he was part of. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm fine. I was blind. I didn't see the error of my ways. I didn't see the the evil I was part of, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my sins relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. I wonder if part of the popularity of this hymn is because it's so true. It's not just about some, you know, idea about God. It's deeply personal. This is what grace can do in the life of a wretch like me, maybe like you. Rule keeping has its place. We need it. The rule keeping does not make God love you any more. And rule breaking, even though there may be consequences in this world, rule breaking doesn't make God love you any less. Rules have the ability to keep us on the right path, but the rules themselves are not the path. Grace is the path. Grace is the path that leads to the heart of a loving God who invites us onto the path, who helps us along the path, who heals us if we need healing, who restores us if we're broken, who welcomes us into the heart of God. Rules can't do that. But grace certainly can. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and that you will listen again in the future. If you enjoyed today's message, we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and share it with others on social media. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If this podcast is a valuable resource to you, 
we invite you to give to this ministry by making a financial contribution at firstchurchorlando.org forward slash give. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.